Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Saving money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at And welcome to This is Critical. I'm Virginia Heffernan. This is Critical is the show where we question all of your assumptions about culture, like that public pools are just filled with children's pee, when in fact they're filled with pee from people of all ages, but also glorious aquafresh blue water and weirdos with nose plugs and organized people hell-bent on actually swimming and geriatrics in skirted bathing costumes that really bring out the color of their eyes. My happiest kid days were spent at Stores Pond Recreation Area, Spra. It was New Hampshire. People in the pool were poor, working class, and middle class like me. I'm pretty sure some of the Richies had their own private pools. Now, I vaguely knew that way down in the city, pools had once been segregated. But the municipal pool of our town struck me as egalitarian and also permissive. Unless you hung on the ropes, then the whistle squealed. When I moved to New York City in the 1990s, I briefly understood that public pools had become dangerous and that girls were getting harassed and even assaulted in them. So I skipped them for many summers until about 15 years ago, when I went back to a New York City pool with my kids and discovered they're awesome now. But the pools are a tight ship. Men's swimsuit must have mesh linings, whatever that means. No sneakers allowed, no newspapers allowed, no balls allowed, no floaties. And of course, no peeing, but even the fearsome NYPD has a hard time with enforcement there. Public pools, it turns out, were once used for cleaning your body. They were baths. And now they're used for recreation, play, swimming, and cooling off. My guest to discuss all things public pools is Jeff Wiltsey. He's an associate professor of history at the University of Montana and the author of Contested Waters, a social history of swimming pools in America. Jeff, welcome to This is Critical. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So, Jeff, this was an episode we wanted to do from the very beginning of this podcast because I love pools. One of our producers loves pools, and we're all fascinated by them. A couple weeks ago, I was at Barton Springs, which is, I don't know if you know it, it's a natural cold spring in Austin, Texas. So it's not technically a swimming pool, but it's set up like one. $5 to get in, and the water's very clear. And I was, you know, splashing around, taking in the scene, and it suddenly got defamiliarized. And I started thinking, all of us bathing together, all ages, all genders, all races, everyone together in 
in pretty skimpy swimwear. And it just struck me that we were all taking a giant bath together, like like little siblings. It was such a bizarre and intimate and unifying activity. Yes. And for precisely those reasons, the intimacy involved in the use of pools, they have really a contested history. And so in a place like Austin, Texas, they do appear to be, you know, democratic melting pots with a very, very diverse group of people using them. And one that you didn't identify, but you could also probably throw in as well is class diversity. Yes. Um, You know, poor and working class, middle class, um, all using the same wonderful public pool. It's certainly not always been that way. And it is certainly not today that way throughout the country. I would argue that in many places in the country, swimming pools continue to be spaces in which the social fault lines within American society are conspicuously apparent. In suburban neighborhoods, certainly, in cities like St. Louis um, and Cleveland and Detroit, certainly swimming pools today continue to show significant social divisions. And why is that? I mean, how is that enforced if we're talking about public pools? Well, the place to start is in the past. And that suburbs really grew and proliferated during the post-World War II period in the 1950s and 1960s. And there's a concept called white flight, Mm-hmm. where many white Americans, not just middle and upper middle class, but even working class whites, sort of moved out of cities and settled in suburbs. And part of what caused them to move out of cities was that cities were very socially diverse places. And they wanted an environment where they would not have to interact with people who were socially different from themselves. And so literally millions of white families are moving out to suburbs during the post-World War II period, and those suburbs were lily white. Now, the people who moved out to suburbs, they could have chosen to open up public swimming pools, which had been the case in cities, but they didn't. Hmm. In case after case after case, the residents of these new suburban developments chose to build private swim clubs. You had to apply for membership, be accepted as a member. And what I found is that in in most suburbs, these private swim clubs did not need rules prohibiting African-Americans from being members because there were no African-Americans living in the surrounding neighborhood and no African-Americans were applying to be members. Mm -hmm. But suburban communities around Washington, D.C. provide an interesting example because there was a relatively large Black middle class in Washington, D.C. And some middle class Black families were able to buy homes in some of the surrounding suburbs out in Virginia and in Maryland. And some did, in fact, apply to become members of the private swim clubs that were in those neighborhoods. And in response to that, I found several cases of the board of those swim clubs denied the application by the Black family and then explicitly wrote into their bylaws that membership would be restricted only to whites. So they had to make it explicit rather than just, you know, a hundred hoops to jump through in order to keep it segregated. Got it. Right. There were tens of thousands of these private suburban swim clubs. They were essentially 
all lily white and not entirely, but to a significant degree, many of them have continued to be since their founding. Mm -hmm. A good example of this, and this reveals so much, I think, back in 2009, the Valley Swim Club, which was a private swim club on the outskirts of Philadelphia. And during the Great Recession, there was an inner city Philadelphia day camp that wasn't able to use the public pools in Philadelphia because several of them were closed for the season or had shorter operating hours. And so they contracted to bring the campers out to the Valley Swim Club one afternoon a week. The first day that the campers arrive at this private swim club to use the pool for their one afternoon a week, and the adults who were there with their kids pulled their white children out of the pool and wondered aloud, what were all these Black and Latino kids doing at their swim club? Shortly thereafter, there was a meeting held by the board of directors who decided to rescind the lease agreement with this Philadelphia day camp. And when questioned as to why the board made that decision, the president of the board explained that, well, there was concern among the members, and this is the word he used, that the swimmers changed the complexion of the pool. So this is 2009. So that's a starkly different social parable than the one you told about being at the swimming pool in Austin, Texas. Yeah, I mean, this is especially disturbing because of how explicit the racism is with the word complexion and complaints, you know, overtly about the race of other swimmers. And I guess What's unnerving about that is that pools are just so essential for all of us, especially city dwellers. It's not even just about fun. I mean, (laughs) the thing that I was struck for in Austin is that it wasn't just about swimming or even mostly about swimming. It was simply about the thing we're seeing more and more, and, and that's that people were too damn hot. They needed to cool off. And to me, I don't know how they do it in private clubs, but it seems probably in the clubs, it's more decorous. There's no one probably cannonballing in the swim clubs. So my use of the term club is not meant to ascribe particular activities to it. At suburban swim clubs, there is certainly a lot of Marco Polo, a lot of cannonballing, but also what happens at them are swimming lessons and swim teams competitions. And so one of the consequences of this proliferation of private swim clubs during the post-World War II period, and there were, there were literally tens of thousands of them built in suburbs around the country, is that they served as the seedbeds of competitive youth swimming. Hmm. And so when you, when you look in the recent past, now things are changing with Colin Jones and Simone Manuel, very, very successful Olympian gold medal winning African-American swimmers. But this is a recent phenomenon. Um, For most of the last several decades, pretty much all of the high-level competitive swimmers in the United States have been white. And a large part of the reason for that is because these suburban swim clubs have been the seedbeds for producing competitive swimmers. It sounds like it's like squash courts or something. You're just like not going to get squash champions that don't belong to clubs. 
To a large extent, yes. Yeah. I mean, there are certainly some exceptions to that. A man named Jim Ellis, who the movie Pride was made about him as a swim instructor in Philadelphia, working with African-American kids, operating out of a a not high-class pool. And, and he produced some, some very, very high quality swimmers. And so, yes, there are some examples, but those are really the exceptions that, to use the adage, kind of prove the more general rule that it was the, the private swim clubs out of which competitive swimmers for a couple of generations really emerged. We're going to take a break. When we come back, there's another reason for the racial segregation of pools beyond private swimming clubs in white suburbs. In fact, the swimming pools in the early 20th century in the North were not segregated. And there's a very specific reason that changed. That's next. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. back with Jeff Wiltsey, the author of Contested Waters. So Jeff, the segregation of pools, how is it different from the segregation of other things? I mean, we always hear about pools and water fountains as kind of the, the signature loci of Jim Crow. And the fact that both of these have water involved and have these highly physical components to them, I don't know, but that strikes me as somehow salient. There, there are certainly connections. So early in the 20th century, swimming pools in the northern United States and in the western United States were not racially segregated. In my research, I found many, many examples of blacks and whites swimming together in the same pools in New York, in Chicago, in Philadelphia, even in a city like St. Louis. Mm -hmm. which had some sort of institutionalized forms of Jim Crow. Now, what's important to understand about those pools is that they were gender segregated. Males and females were not permitted to swim together in those pools. And so having mixed race use was was not a, a point of contention. And I found quite a few articles actually written in African-American newspapers, such as the Pittsburgh Courier, explaining that at the gender-segregated pools, blacks and whites swim together and no trouble arises. That was the quote used by Mm -hmm. one writer for the Pittsburgh Courier. So in the South, things were different. I mean, there was rigid Jim Crow. And so, of course, swimming pools were going to be racially segregated. And so what's most illustrative is to look at the North and the West, where prior to the 1920s, pools were not racially segregated. What happens during the 1920s and 1930s is that cities throughout the country start to build large leisure resort pools, thousands and thousands of new pools, many of them larger than football fields, can accommodate thousands and thousands of people. And 
these swimming pools have considerable leisure space surrounding them. Some have artificial sandy beaches, some have grassy lawns, and public officials now want these facilities to serve as community gathering spaces, to really foster a vibrant community life. And so, for the first time, they allow males and females to use them together. Hmm. And so it's not until the 1920s and 1930s that public swimming pools become gender integrated. And it was at that point in time that white swimmers began objecting to the presence of black swimmers in the North and in the West. And the explanation is that at the time, most whites did not want black men interacting with white women at such visually and physically intimate spaces. And and so they imposed racial segregation. Now, in the southern tier of northern states, so think, say, Missouri, Maryland, or the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., the racial segregation that gets imposed during the 1920s and 1930s, it's officially enforced by public officials. Further north, in places like Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, the form of racial segregation that develops at the now gender-integrated pools is a de facto form of segregation Mm. in which white swimmers use violence and the threat of violence to intimidate African Americans from using pools that are now earmarked as white spaces. Which leads us, I guess, to the case of Pittsburgh's Highland Park Pool. Tell us about what happened there. So Pittsburgh actually was quite late in gender integrating its pools. Hmm. Throughout the 1920s, there was a dozen or so public pools in Pittsburgh, all of which were gender segregated. And those pools that were located near to African-American neighborhoods were racially integrated. And this is where the Pittsburgh Courier has all sorts of articles about blacks and whites using the pools together. No Mm. problem arises. In 1931, Pittsburgh opened its first large leisure resort pool in Highland Park. It was a complex that had three swimming tanks, one of which was 220 feet long by 220 feet wide and could accommodate thousands of people at a time. And because they wanted it to serve as a community gathering space, they also then allowed males and females to use it together. Now, on the opening day, a large stream of people sought to enter the pool, but each and every identifiably Black person was pulled out of the line of people entering the pool, and the attendants demanded to see their health certificate, which would prove that they were disease-free. But it quickly became clear that the real cause of the racial concern was the gender integration. Mm -hmm. So a meeting was held in which the leaders of the local NAACP met with the mayor to try to find out why they were singled out to need to provide this health certificate. And the mayor said, you know, there is no health certificate requirement. There'll be no further discrimination in Black residents being able to access the pool. And so the day after, a group of about 50 teenage African-American boys, young men, entered the pool, then actually entered the water 
And upon entering the water, they were surrounded by a group of 200 white men and teenagers, and they were beaten while in the water. They were pulled under the water to simulate drowning. They were punched and they were kicked until all of them sort of left the pool out of fear for their lives. In subsequent days thereafter, there were then groups of whites that waited outside the pool armed with bats and sticks and rocks waiting for any prospective black swimmers to try to enter the pool and they would be beaten before they even entered the water. Now, there were police officers stationed at the pool and the police officers at the end of the beatings would then arrest the black victims of the violence, charging them with inciting to riot. And through this complicit support of the local police and through the violence, white swimmers were effectively able to establish racial segregation at Highland Park Pool. It did not end until the 1950s. I mean, this boggles the mind, especially because of this component that your work has turned up, which is that racial segregation only followed the gender desegregation. And if that's the case... It seems striking that the city doesn't separate the genders again, you know, make this a place just for cooling off and swimming and not for flirting or mingling among genders. So the pools that I've described, these large leisure resort pools, were extraordinarily popular. On any given day at some of these pools, 5,000, 10,000, 12,000 people gathering together. Now, 1934, there was an article in Fortune magazine in which the author attempted to explain why swimming pools had, just within that generation, become such popular places for people to gather. And his explanation was that people came to pools largely because of the exhibitionism and voyeurism, that swimming pools were a unique urban space where you could see others mostly unclothed and you could present yourself to others mostly unclothed. Now, Hmm. the one thing to add to this is that during this period from 1920 to 1940, the acceptable size of swimsuits shrank drastically. Hmm. So in the early 1920s, swimsuits covered almost the entirety of a woman's body, except for basically her feet, her hands, and her head. For men in the early 1920s, they wore kind of trunks that went down mid-thigh, and they wore shirts that covered their upper bodies. By the late 1920s, men had shed the shirts, and so they were exposing their upper bodies. Women were now wearing tight-fitting one-piece swimsuits that not only showed their arms, their legs, their bust line, but generally the shapes of their bodies. Mm -hmm. And then by the late 1930s, women started to wear two-piece bathing suits, which then revealed even more of their bodies. And there's lots of reasons why swimsuits shrink in size. I mean, part of it is the marketing by swimsuit companies like Janssen. They wanted to continually sell sort of new cycles of swimsuits. And the Mm. way to do that was to come out with new designs. And frequently their new designs were skimpier and skimpier and skimpier. You know, you got to change up the style to get people to buy new ones. But it was also very much the case that young women 
um, were pushing the boundaries of what was acceptable. And I found all sorts of wonderful letters to the editor complaining about the skimpy <laughs> swimsuits worn by these young women. They would call them sea vamps, the sea vamps wearing their skimpy swimsuits. And so beginning in 1926, 1927, cities begin to hold bathing beauty competitions at their local public swimming pool Mm-hmm. in which young women, 16, 17-year-old women, wearing the latest skimpy, tight-fitting swimsuits mm-hmm. are paraded out on the pool deck before a crowd, kind of an ogling crowd, and then are judged. Now, in the example of the contest, this was formalized, but it was also the case that just on a daily basis, young women, I think, intuitively knew that at a swimming pool, they were on display. And at least based upon the evidence that I was able to find, many of them did not shy away from from doing so. Now, we can talk about what effects that had on on their sense of themselves. And I mean, and I would argue that had all sorts of adverse effects for women. There's so many themes that this picks up. And I I think about, you know, kind of every year, women's magazines, when they used to be very seasonal, uh, and I'm sure online sites too, you know, would say how to get a beach body, how to get a uh, body. I was watching a million years ago, I was reviewing the Miss Universe pageant and looking at them in swimsuits and the look of the time, which might still be the look, is just this dark artificial tan, you know, orangey kind of whatever, made in a lab, and then so much musculature that they were basically crustaceans. And I kept thinking, they're naked and they want to look not naked. It's like they've put armor over the part of them that was naked, you know, which is vulnerable and made themselves invulnerable. I mean, I will say that, you know, whatever the consequences are for female self-esteem or body image or weight stigma or whatever, the major consequence that you point out, I've never heard anyone point out, is that once you make it a place for flirtation, for exhibitionism, then you introduce the segregation. The segregation is an artifact of that sexualization of the pool, which just is mind-blowing. Yeah, absolutely. In, in the 1920s, there was a prevalent racist stereotype among white Americans, that that black men were at best sexually undisciplined, and in some cases that black men had an almost uncontrollable sexual desire for white women. Now, this was a racist trope that was fabricated in the South during the late 19th century as a way to justify the lynching of black Mm -hmm. men. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of Black men being able to interact with white women at these now highly sexualized, gender-integrated public pools was just anathema to most whites. We're going to take another break. When we come back, we're not going to drill down. I don't like that expression. But we are going to plunge in to the present moment in swimming pools. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We're back with Jeff Wiltsey, author of Contested Waters. So, Jeff, right at a moment when swimming pools, when when public pools would seem to be not just a civic good, but a public health good. You know, I'm thinking of the heat wave in Portland, Oregon last summer, where uh, Portland just couldn't keep up with the demand for swimming pools. The mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, just recently announced that in in my city, we're cutting swimming lessons and lap swimming because there's a national lifeguard shortage. And the political commentator, Heather McGee, uses the draining of public pools as a metaphor for, I guess, the lack of political will to invest in communities of color. Do you think we might see a time where pools become egalitarian spaces for people Or do you think that just as there's the most need for public pools, we're seeing racism creep in again? There absolutely continue to be significant race-based disparities in terms of accessing pools, accessing swim lessons. I mean, historically, race was at the forefront of the inequality in accessing pools. Today, I think it's more class-based. Right. I think that when you look at different areas of the country and you look within metropolitan regions, what you find are that middle, upper middle class, well-to-do, affluent Americans, regardless mm-hmm. of their racial identity, can access swimming pools and swim lessons, but that poor and working class Americans, again, regardless of race, are far more restricted in being able to access swimming pools, swim lessons, and swim teams. Mm-hmm. And certainly there are urban areas in which African Americans, Latino Americans continue to be sort of the, the most kind of prevalent and conspicuous poor within some cities. And so you can certainly see unequal access to pools through a lens of of racial inequality, and that's absolutely there. Hmm. But I don't necessarily think today that it's a product of overt racism. Hmm. Hmm. It's a product of poverty, Mm -hmm. and it's a product of swimming pools being relatively expensive forms of public recreation to build, to staff, to maintain. And so when cities that are not very affluent, are struggling to balance their budgets, Mm. it's easy for those to cut. Now, other areas of the country, you take affluent cities. You just mentioned Portland. I live in Missoula, Montana, which is a, a, a relatively affluent, it's a small city. And we have this fantastic, large, Olympic-sized swimming pool with a a, a water playground. We have an indoor swimming facility. And over the last 15 years, we've invested in water-based recreation. I know the pool in Missoula you're talking about. Oh, Um, fantastic. It has has my favorite feature of a pool, chain link. 
Does it still? Yes. Chain yes. link oh, is yeah. the it's the only way I recognize a pole. Chain link, some people with cigarettes, um, lots of kids with candy. I just don't like any any one of the really nice ones. Um there have to be tattoos, there have to be cannonballs, there have to be some mean kids doing splash wars. Um <laughs> So it has the pool in Missoula has a lazy river. Oh, and and you, you get inner tubes and you go around the lazy river. And if you want to see, you know, grabbing and clutching and splashing and screaming and wrestling. People knocking over your floaty. Oh, so Yes, fun. the lazy river is the place to see all that. The word that comes to mind is just glee when I think of these public pools. And everyone should get to experience that glee. It, it, you know, there's nothing more democratic than the idea of a public body of water where we can all submerge ourselves and cool off between, well, chain link fences, my favorite, on hot summer days. Jeff, this is such a stimulating subject and so interesting. Thank you for being here. It was really, really illuminating. It's my pleasure. It's great to talk with you. That's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people learn about us. For more information and to keep tabs on the show, follow me on Twitter at page 88 and at This Critical Pod. If you've got a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Ella Fetter and Michelle O'Brien are the producers. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.